This is the Nebraska Greats, a weekly podcast as a service to the Nebraska Greats Foundation, which serves former collegiate athletes facing medical needs and financial challenges. Your tax-deductible contribution will change the life of a former college sports hero. Please give online at negreats.org. And now, here's your host, Brett Wenn. Welcome to the Nebraska Greats Apple Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Wetton. I'm just a guest host, but man, I've really enjoyed doing this. Before we get to the introduction of our next guest, I do want to talk about Nebraska Greats Foundation. Our motto is very simple. We are family. In Nebraska, we take care of our neighbors. And the Nebraska Greats Foundation, we do that exactly. So if you're any former student, uh, athlete, letter winner from any of the 16 colleges and universities in Nebraska, and you have a medical financial need, our organization is set up to take care of you, okay? There are really three things here. One, I realize many of you listening probably have your own organization that you you donate to. Please consider donating to us. It is a tax write-off. We are an official nonprofit. Secondly, if you have another uh, organization you give to, but you wanna still help us, please share this on all the social media platforms, um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, that just really helps get the awareness out for Nebraska Greats Foundation. Thirdly, we're always looking for applicants, right? So the problem with uh, former student athletes in the state of Nebraska is that they're prideful, they don't wanna ask for help. So if you could help us identify a former teammate, a friend or a family member that's in need, they can contact me on social media and contact or go to the nebraskagreats.org website and we have an application process and we literally and seriously mean this, we are family. And I've had the fortune of, great fortune of being on the board of directors for the past two years and the people we've been able to help. And there's one gal in particular that sticks out down in Peru State. She has MS and she just needed a bed. She just spent the next two years of her life in a bed and, and she will succumb to her MS and she just wanted a bed to spend time with the three kids. So if that doesn't hit you in the heart, um, then I don't know what does. So with that being said, um, I want to give a huge shout out to Matt Tompkins at Two Brothers Creative. I think his job is to herd cats, to get all of us together and organize us and produce a show. So thank you, Matt Tompkins, for doing that. And without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce the next guest, Adam Carricker. Adam, how are you today, buddy? I'm glorious. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, man. You know, Adam, you know, you and I have, you know, have gotten to know each other over the last year and a half. And um, I knew you as a player or watched you from afar as a player and being a first round draft pick and a Husker and having a great career. But honestly, man, the character chronicles, man, throwing the bones just got me excited. Let's let's kind of talk about um, I just have three buckets to go through today, buddy. And one is uh, I'm an offensive lineman. You're a defensive lineman. And, you know, back in the day we used to, you know, tease each other and fight each other. Talk to me a little bit about, about that relationship. Well, offensive linemen, they're just mean, dirty, nasty. They cheat, they hold. <laughs> um, they're not as athletic as defensive linemen, so that makes them mad. <laughs> you know, I'll be honest with you. So when I first got to Nebraska, uh, Justin Smith, I don't know if you uh, remember him, but he was actually the guy who hosted me. My first, I got to campus about two weeks before the dorms opened, which was when fall camp started which was when we had two days way back in the day. And so I slept on his couch for two weeks. And as you know, I started to go to workouts, I started to work out with the team and I'd always go back and forth with him uh, to and from the workouts. I noticed the offensive linemen weren't too friendly. 
And I'm like, you know, and in high school, we played both ways, you know, so O-linemen were D-linemen and so on and so forth. I was the quarterback in a D-lineman, so it was a little bit different for me. I was like, man, why aren't they, why aren't they friendly? He goes, I hate those guys, just without hesitation, just like, I hate those guys. And I was like, oh, okay. And so over time, I don't know that I hated them. Um, but what you learn is that when you're going against somebody every day, obviously a natural rivalry occurs. So there tends to be competition on the field. Sometimes it turns into fisticuffs. Sometimes it does not. Uh, sometimes that depending on the individual, it carries over off the field. Sometimes it does not. It absolutely does lead into some lengthy death stares from time to time. It absolutely does lead into some stuff going back and forth verbally. Uh, it, in the moment, it gets very heated. Then when you step back, especially when you start to get out of camp, which is when the most of that stuff happens, and you start to get ready to, you know, per se, go to war as a team instead of going to war like you felt like it was every day going against each other, some of that stuff, stuff starts to subside. But until then, man, you're going against each other and you feel like you're on two opposite sides. But then as the season gets closer, you're coming together as one. No, I can speak to the same thing, man. And so uh, there's a kindred spirit that we have because we played on opposite sides. But and then again, for all offensive linemen out there, we tend to think we're the better looking uh, group of people and uh, the smarter group of people. But, you know, I'm not going to belabor that anymore, Adam. So um, uh, so just some fun facts here before we get into these three buckets. Uh, um, so I heard you can throw a football quite a ways. Is that true, Adam? Yeah, I used to be able to. So. Uh, growing up, actually, baseball was by far my best sport. I thought that was the sport I was always going to play uh, beyond high school. Uh, long story short, I hurt my elbow, decided not to have the surgery because I could play football without having to have the surgery. So I said, ta-ta to baseball. But my sophomore year in high school, I was clocked at 95 miles an hour. And in football, I was the quarterback, as I mentioned. And I would people would challenge me all the time to throwing competitions. Our current head coach at one point in time challenged me to a throwing competition. Uh, his shot put looking throw did not win. I will say that that day he needed a cutoff man at about 55 yards, but I could always get to 84. No, it was never 85. It was always 84. And then I'd get stuck. So I could always throw and things of that nature. But by the time I got to Nebraska, that was kind of a thing of the past. So I hurt my ankle my freshman year. So I was in a boot and uh, Joe Daly, our starting quarterback. At, uh, every time I share this story, I never share his name. And I let the cat out of the bag starts talking trash to me. And I'm like, bro, I've seen you throw, go run the option, you know? And, you know, so I'm, and she won't shut up. So we have a throwing competition and I out throw him. But what happens is I get to about 83, 84 yards and I about nail Barney Cotton, who's in the opposite end zone, didn't even know it. And it kind of caught everyone's attention, you know? And that's how later that summer, Coach Frost, actually was Scott at the time playing for the Jets, challenged me to a throwing competition. So yeah, I've always had a very strong arm. Uh, whether it was baseball or football. And I actually had more offers, way more as a quarterback than I did as a defensive lineman. I just, I liked hitting people rather than being hit. Um, so that's kind of how that worked out. But I had surgery. My rookie year was my left shoulder. My third year was my right shoulder. And actually Drew Brees and I had the same exact surgery, but we did much different rehabs because he was coming back to throw a football. I was coming back to bench press refrigerators and move fat offensive linemen off of me. See, I'm going to bring it back up. And so I do not have the range of motion and I cannot throw anywhere near as I probably throw about 50 yards now. And then my arm starts to hurt, but I can do batting practice with my kids. And that's about it with a baseball now, which is all I need to do. Thank goodness. But once upon a time I could throw much better than I can now. 
Well, that's something we have in common. I uh, I could throw a ball about 83 yards, so I'm just just, just behind <laughs> you there. Couldn't throw the baseball 95 yards, but but you know we'd always warm up on the field and you're sitting there throwing the thing 75 plus yards. People are always kind of freaked out about that. So I love that story and want to kind of bring that in. So let's go over the three buckets, Adam. So I, I want to talk a little bit about high school, uh, the recruiting process to Nebraska, and then the second bucket's going to be the Huskers, uh, and then I want to kind of talk a little bit about being a first round draft pick, which is really a big deal in the NFL. And then the last bucket, which I think is going to be one of my favorites, going to be talking about character chronicles. Uh, and that's where I first really kind of got to know you and just love the charm of the show. All the fans of former athletes that just love talking football, love Nebraska football. I want to talk about that. So let's start off with our first bucket. Let's go with, give us a rundown of high school, recruiting process uh, to Nebraska and, and whatever you want to discuss? Probably not what most people would envision. Uh, as I mentioned, I was a high school quarterback. I actually didn't play defense until my senior year of high school. Uh, so, I, like I said, I didn't have near as many offers as a defensive end. I was always the pitcher, the quarterback, yada, yada, yada. Um, and so I went to Nebraska's football camp, and that was the first time I ever really played D.N was at that football camp. And I remember Coach Barnes, Nelson Barnes, and he was right. You know, he goes, you're not good enough to play here. He goes, you're either going to have to play at a lower level or go be a quarterback. And I wasn't going to be a quarterback in Nebraska at the time because I'm not exactly an option quarterback. And so I thought I was done with Nebraska. I just thought it was kind of out the window. So I was looking at Northwest schools. I grew up in the state of Washington. So it was, it was really down to Oregon, Oregon State, Washington State. Washington never even talked to me. Oregon actually pulled their offer. Um, I was on a high school team that was two and 34 in four years. So not, not great. Oh, and nine, my senior year. So it created some challenges, uh, as far as recruiting wise. So, like I said, told I wasn't good enough. Certain schools didn't offer certain schools pulled their offer. So for me, you know, when guys talk about all these offers and highly recruited up, that's, that's wonderful. That's great. I can't entirely relate. I, I will. Nebraska didn't know. That was my dream school. That's where I wanted to go. So the end of the year, I got better and better at defensive end. And the last game of the year was versus a team called Moses Lake. And they ran the, the, the Veer triple option. They just ran the ball 60, 70 times a game. And I ended up with 22 tackles that game. And I was like, we got to send this to Nebraska. I might have a shot. And so we sent the tape off. It was really the last ditch effort. And they called back about a week later and offered me to walk on. And so my dad and I chatted. And obviously, you know, you're walking on, you're paying your own way, but then I'm out of state tuition. It literally makes it twice as expensive. And so we chatted and he's like, this is your dream. Now, is your dream worth paying the rest of your life, paying for it the rest of your life? Because it's literally what you're going to be doing. He's like, if it's worth it, then do it. If it's not, then don't. Like my parents weren't going to be able to help me out too much. It was literally my decision. And I said, you know, I can go three, four hours away and have everything paid for, or I can go halfway across the country and pay for it the rest of my life. That is my dream. But I, I, I called them and I said, thank you, but no, thank you. It's just not going to work. They literally called back the very next night with an offer. Now, looking back on it, I don't think people realize just how much of a business college football is. They don't see it the same way as they see the NFL, even though it really is if you from the top down. At the time, though, being a high school kid, I just felt dirty pools being played. Okay. I understand it much better now than I did that looking back rather than looking for, I was pissed. And so they offered me to come in, have a recruiting visit. You know, Matt Harrion was there that same weekend. And there was a lot of other guys that ended up playing. 
And I just the entire weekend, I was walking around pouting, just like a little four-year-old child. <laughs> and we're sitting outside of Coach Solich's office, and he's going to talk with everybody one-on-one at some point. And my dad looks at me, and he goes, all right, so it's your lifelong dream. You got an offer now. Do you want to come here? And I, I said, yeah. He said, okay, so you want to come here? Just double check. I'm like, yeah, double checking. Yes, I do. He goes, so are you done? I said, what? He said, are you done pouting? And I said, well, I don't know. He said, well, you're going to talk to Coach Solich in about 90 seconds. So why don't you decide if you're done pouting or not? And so I went in and I committed. And so that's kind of how that thing worked out. And that was kind of in a nutshell, my recruiting story and how that all panned out and played out. No, that's that. What a great story. I didn't I didn't know the background on that. And and look, it is a business. I don't care if it's the NFL or college football. It's a business of big decisions. And uh, how interesting that you were quarterback and then not really playing that much on defense uh, or defensive end position and sending that video in. And then a week later, they contact you and then then they then they bring you in a recruiting trip. Um, so so what has your dad thought about your looking back now? What is your, your what have your parents thought about your career in football, knowing this this background? I think they're incredibly proud of it. Um, I mean, they they obviously know all the way to the very beginning. Like, I won't bore you with it, but long story short, I didn't grow up in the nicest parts of a not so nice town. And so there was a lot of challenges, a lot of things. Uh, actually, the town in the, where I grew up was known as Little Mexico. Um, so there was all sorts of diversity, which is really good. It can create, you know, sometimes some challenges or a little bit of division, which we're trying to work on in this country. But at the time, it created some challenges. As I mentioned, the team wasn't great. So going all the way back to the beginning, I didn't even start playing quarterback or uh, football until seventh grade. I'd never played flag. I'd never played tackle. Uh, oddly enough, my dad didn't want me to get hurt, which is why he wouldn't let me do it until seventh grade. And then I really didn't play defense because I was always the quarterback. And so until my senior year. So going into my senior year, had you had somebody pointed at me and said, that guy will be a first round draft pick at defensive end. Their response would have been, hey, idiot, he's never even played defense. What? <laughs> you know, and so you go all the way back to the beginning and just how it kind of panned out. And, you know, when I came into Nebraska, there, this individual is still there. If I said his name, everybody would know who he is in the media. He wrote multiple articles. And in fact, my dad had a box full of articles that he gave me two years ago. He's like, you should actually go through these, keep some and get rid of some. So I spent like an entire day. It was a big box and papers are pretty thin. It was all. And I, I went through the articles and I came across all three articles because I remembered them um, almost word for word. And according to my memory, and he wrote, I was too slow, too unathletic, and I'd have to go play on the offensive line. That is not a shot at offensive lineman. That is what he said. And I never forgot that. So if you've ever watched the show and you've ever heard me say, I didn't come in. And there was another defensive end that came in. There was four in my class. I was ranked fourth of those four. And there was another DN who was from just down the road. He was number seven in the country. And so you're hearing things about this individual, the other individuals, then you hear this about me. So if you've ever heard me say, I didn't come in with a chip on my shoulder. I came in with a whole freaking forest. That's, that's why. And that is exactly how I felt. Um, so I think they're quite proud, you know, there's some things in everybody's career that you wish you could change, improve on, go back and do better. And I'll start talking about those from time to time, just being a competitor. Um, and my dad will just look at me and he goes, I think you did all right. <laughs> you know, um, so I think they're pretty proud. Adam, I think you did all right. And uh, 
identify with having the forest in your back, grew up in a very similar situation. And so good for you to go back through those articles. And, you know, I always call it wood for the fire, man. When people, the, the naysayers, the doubters, and, and sometimes in the media, you know, it's all out there in the public. And so uh, good for you for doing that. And and this whole this whole notion that, you know, be a first round draft pick on defense and then, you know, throwing down one of my favorite players, Tom Brady, throwing him to the ground like a rag doll. Um, it's pretty impressive, Adam, pretty impressive. So let's fast forward a little bit into just your time in Nebraska. I realize we're covering a lot very quickly. What are some moments that stuck out to you? maybe some people that you remember or uh, anything along the lines of that, Adam would be great. Oh man. We could, we could spend hours talking about some of those things. I'll try to narrow that down. I mean, moments that stick out to me. I still remember my first ever workout. Like it was yesterday. Um, Part of that is one of the guys I met and these were two walk-ons, so they may not be as well known. Tyler Tolene is still one of my good friends to this day. Um, He has a big, gigantic square head. So I called him Jack in the box head for a long time. Don't worry. He's heard me say that a million times. Uh, the other individual was Jeff McBride, who is now my brother-in-law. Uh, I ended up marrying his sister. So I remember that day very well. The third individual was Bernard Thomas. He's easy to remember. So those were the first three guys I ever met before a workout. Um, three very different individuals, but you know, I remember back when you could do two a days, I remember when they got rid of them, that I remember when it just went to one a days because you could go two, one, two, one, then it went to one a days. Uh, I remember, you know, obviously when Solich had to let go a bunch of his staff after my freshman year, then the next year they let go of Solich. And I found out watching ESPN in my parents, uh, grandparents' house at Aurora, watching playing cards. Like that's how we found out. I remember the whole Bo Pelini uh, when he was the interim coach going into the Michigan State Alamo Bowl. I remember the fans chanting afterwards, wanting Bo. I remember when Callahan got hired, right. I remember his first meeting with the team. I remember when he tried to get all the walk-ons to quit. Um, I remember a lot of things from those years that I'm just going to skip over. Um, I remember my first ever real game, which was against Oklahoma State. Uh, I remember my last game in Memorial Stadium, which was against Colorado. And I remember being by far the last guy to leave the field because I did not want to leave the field. There's a lot of things in between the Alamo Bowl versus Michigan with the comeback and then the almost play at the end of the game that I'm glad did not turn into a touchdown. Still the longest play I've ever been involved in in my life. I remember Oklahoma, the Big 12 title game, not being able to get that done. Auburn in the Cotton Bowl, similar situation. So we had some good wins versus Michigan, Michigan State. When we were underdogs in those games, we had some wins that I wish we could have gotten that we weren't able to. I remember the night before my first ever game I was going to play in, which was against that Oklahoma State team. I was backing up Trevor Johnson at defensive end, and the D-line coach, Jeff Jamrog, sat me down, and he goes, we've talked, and we want you to play about 15 to 20, probably about 18 plays tomorrow And I on defense, and I played zero. I played absolutely zero. Uh, I played on field goal block, and I was able to block one of the field goals. Um, but I remember I've, – I've, I've always been a team first guy, always. In fact, if I could go back and change one thing, two things for my career, I would have stopped uh, at 280 pounds. I would have quit putting on weight instead of being 295 my senior year. Um, the other thing is when the Rams asked me before in our pre-draft meeting, if we bring you in, we've got Leonard Little, Leroy Glover, James Hall. We've got three positions set on this D-line. We need a nose guard. Would you play? I would say no. Uh, physically, it doesn't fit me, but I was always taught you do what's best for the team. So you go all the way back. That's always been my mindset. Uh, 
right? And which is why this is such an anomaly. After that Oklahoma State game, it was a big win. Barrett Rude had the re- recovered fumble. He took it in for a touchdown. There's a picture of him holding the ball in the air, the crowd going crazy. It's the only time in my life where I ever felt like I was selfish and truly selfish over what had just happened with the team. I remember Jamrock trying to talk to me after the game. I wouldn't talk to him because I felt lied to. Like me being able to trust somebody is very, very important. Um, my attitude's always been, it's not hard to find friends. What it's hard to find is people you can trust. And I felt like I couldn't trust my D-line coach. And so he wasn't happy with my reaction. I wasn't happy with what happened. And I actually legit thought about transferring. Legit did. Told my parents. Didn't tell anyone else. Really lasted about 72 hours, and that was it. I got over it. Um, It's funny. You'll probably notice, and my wife learned this. When we first started dating, and if we had a spat, she would leave me alone. And then she'd come back, and I'd be madder than ever. I'm like, I'm not one of those people you let cool down. If you leave me alone, I'll fester up. That's what happens. But, you know, sometimes I was able to, I would like fester up, but then I would ultimately calm down when somebody did talk to me. So obviously I didn't go anywhere and it really lasted about 72 hours and that was it. But that was kind of my memory from that first game. But I remember running out of the tunnel for the first time, going into the tunnel for the last time. Uh, A lot of things in between the A&M game to help win the Big 12 North. The comeback, Zach to Mo Purify in the end zone. Um, you know, a lot of those things. There's a lot of cool things, a lot of change. Different coaches, different coaching staffs, D coordinators, defenses. Um, yeah, there's a lot of well, things. You, you played through a lot of adversity and you played through a lot of uh, different scenarios. And I think that's lost on a lot of people. That isn't easy. I love the comment about loyalty because at the end of the day, they're friends everywhere. And I think the people that I really have inside the trust circle that I have loyalty to, that's worth more than money. That's more than worth than anything else. And so I, I, that loyalty comment is really interesting. Um, so going back to Jamrog really quickly. So after that 72 hour period, Adam, so you're upset uh, for good reason. I actually see it very clearly that way too. So what was that like right after that, that whole transition went through that 72 hour period and you were back back in, back in, back in line again, like for a better term. What was that like, that dynamic? I don't think anybody had any idea other than my parents that transferring had entered my mind. I think Jamrog just thought I was mad. And you got to keep in mind, this is back when people didn't transfer near as often. Right. Um, and that's just not me. Like I'm always been a team first guy, do what's best for the team. Like that legit has always been my mindset. Uh, do what the coach asks you to do, things of that nature. Um, I just went back to practice. But you wanted to play. I mean, you were you were thinking 15, 18 plays and you were all jacked up and ready to go. Like, I I really, really understand that. So, OK, he, he, he did say they were disappointed in how I acted after the game and that I wasn't even excited for the team win. And I agree with them. You know, I, I see both sides. I more agree with him than I, I did with my own actions, to be honest with you. But like 72 hours, I just went back to, to practice and I just moved on. Like once I decided I, I'm not going anywhere, which. I never really wanted to, you know, it's just me pouting like a four-year-old again, you know, I I moved on and I I was like, I'm just going to earn my, I'm big on earning it. And so that was my attitude. Yeah. But Adam, I like the honesty. There's nothing wrong. That's how you felt. And I, I love the honesty and how genuine that is. And I also love it is team first. Uh, And you went back to practice. I just, I love that little story. And I'm unsure how many people knew that. And uh, I love, I've never, I've never shared it before. No, I really appreciate you doing that. And that's part of this. This is not an interview. This is a conversation between uh, two, two football guys. And I, I appreciate that. So 
So you've gone from your first time walking out, of the, running out of the tunnel, and, and then going back into the tunnel. I, I don't, I'm not sure if people really understand like the drafting process, right? So I, can you give us a run through of, you know, the whole agent uh, component, and then you're you're on the pre-draft board, and then you you know you go through the whole process. Give us a run through of that, Adam. Oh yeah. So going, well here, here's another reason I don't entirely trust the media. Um, what I have learned is to trust individuals within the media, but not the media as a whole. Uh, but going into my junior, like the NFL was never on my radar, never once in my entire existence as a kid growing up. Like I said, I thought I was going to play baseball, but my other dream was to play in Nebraska. The NFL was nowhere in there. Okay. It was nowhere on my radar going into my junior year. Uh, after the fourth game of my junior, I had four sacks. And then all of a sudden this article comes out and uh, it talks about how Carriker is already planning on going pro next year. And I was flabbergasted by this because going pro had never entered my mind. So this guy still works in the media, so I never pay attention to anything he writes. And I was like, wow, that's very interesting. Never even occurred to me. And so anyways, the season goes along and I have a pretty good season and I'm projected to be a first round pick if I come out late in the first. I think if the one I remember is 21st, I don't even remember the team uh, overall, but that was like in January. So it was very early on. And so I talked to my dad and I'm like, what do you think? He's like, what do you want to do? And he, he really didn't. Now that I think about it, he really didn't give me any answers. He just put it back on, on me. Um, and basically what I kind of came to, he's like, well, what what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I want to, my dream was to play in Nebraska. I want to play in Nebraska. And then we talked about the injury risk. And that was, that was really the only thing that came in was the injury risk. If I knew I wasn't going to get hurt, there was no question. But if I get hurt, I mean, that could be millions of dollars down the drain. So we got an insurance policy from Lloyd's of London. So I felt at least relatively safe there. And it was a pretty easy decision to come back. But as soon as I announced I was coming back, the messages, the letters, the emails from agents, just flooding. And I quickly realized I wanted nothing to do with this. And I was really busy. And my dad is a deeply organizational person and a very deep thought investigatory, going to look everything up under God's hot sun type person. So I'm like, you're going to do a better job at this and it's going to make my life easier. So I just turn it over to him. And so he dealt with all of them. And I literally laughed because my dad will ask 4 million questions and then he'll ask more like he will. And I was like, Anybody who survives this has got to be a decent candidate because <laughs> they just survived my dad. They're doing a great job. So he, he narrowed it down to two. Uh, the summer going into my senior year, he narrowed it down to two. So from January to that following August, he narrowed it down to two. And then it was kind of up to me. And so I forget when I made the decision. It was some point during the football season. If I remember right, it was later towards October, November. I made the decision to go with who I went, uh, who I went with, but then, so that was the whole agent process. And then the marketing guy as well. One thing I liked was that the marketing guy was connected to the agent. So it was one less thing I had to do. And he was a big time Nebraska guy graduated from UNL. So I like that. And then, so we play Auburn in the cotton bowl and it was back then the cotton bowl was January 1st every year. And it was always the early, it was the earliest college football game of the year. Cause most games start at noon. It always started at 1130. And then everyone, everything else came after that. And so we were done. We were done pretty early in the day. Soon as we were done, I walked out and walked right into a limo for the first time in my life, got right on an airplane and went straight down to Houston, Texas, which is where I trained for three months for the senior bowl, for the combine, for everything else. 
And a couple of things were funny. We got picked up at the airport, my wife and I, who had just been married a week before. So we just got married, uh, which was wonderful timing because it was finals. It was bowl game. It was getting ready for the draft coming up. We were like our honeymoon was Dallas, Texas in the hotel. In fact, Coach Cause pulled me aside one day and he said, I trust you. You're not going to have a curfew at night. They're not going to check your room Um, because my wife and I were staying together. I had no other roommate. He's like, they're not going to check your room. And I need sleep. If I don't get sleep or food, I'm I'm grouchy. Those are the two things that make me grouchy. <laughs> Outside of that, I got a lot of patience. The night before the Cotton Bowl, we went to bed early. I mean, I went to bed at like seven thirty eight or something. And the room—I remember the room being pitch black. I would always pull the curtains. I'd always put lamps up to block any little shade of light. The night before a game at eleven, which is when curfew is. Remember, we're getting up early. So normally, for like an eleven o'clock kickoff, you get up at like 5.30 or 6. We were getting up at 5, earliest ever, and I'm not a morning person. I need my sleep. Knock on the door. It's curfew check. And my wife to this day laughs. She goes, because I was mad. I go, we're in here. You know, I wasn't supposed to have a curfew check. And the person just goes, okay, and leaves. You know, so anyways, we go through the Cotton Bowl. We're on the limo. And then we land in Dallas, and one of the guys who works for the agent picks us up in Houston, and we land in Houston. And... So we were used to Nebraska drivers, Nebraska, nice, let everybody in wave. That is not how this is my first experience in big time city driving. We thought we about died 14 different times <laughs> after being there and in DC. That's just how people drive. But we get to the hotel that night for whatever reason. I remember the orange bowl was a terrible one. It was Louisville and Wake Forest that year. So that was abominable to watch. But the next day I got up and I started training and it's Monday through Friday, twice a day, Saturday in the mornings. And then you get Sunday off and then they have your meals delivered to you. It's like six, the agents pay for all this. It's six little meals, like literally like your, your, your carbs, your protein, your greens, like all patched out for you. And you're supposed to have one cheat meal a week. That's it. And so that's basically what happened until the end of January that I went to the senior bowl and I was down there for a week. Um, That was a really good week for me. That really helped me out a lot. And especially with the draft stock. And then the next two months, we're getting ready for the combine. And the combine was probably the most miserable part of the draft process, if I'm being honest. Again, I need sleep. I'm not a morning person. The combine is designed to wear you out. Like, you don't, there, there's all sorts of testing. They put the testing, like your drug testing and all that. They put it on purpose at four in the morning. So you're tired. And then you've got meetings. You've got all these mental, you're there for five days. You're not just there for a couple of days. You've got all these mental tests that you do. They got all these meetings you do, but none of that bothered me. It was the fact that they made it so you couldn't, like I would have a meeting with the Titans 15 minutes later, the Jets, the Jaguars, whoever. And that's just how it worked. And you never knew what those meetings were going to be like. Like I'll never forget the meeting with the Jets. It, Eric Mangino is a very serious, straight-laced, not-going-to-laugh person. And so I walk in, and every meeting's so different. Sometimes you got a whole bunch of people. Like my meeting with the Broncos was one-on-one with the D-line coach, and that was it. Some teams pulled up your worst 15 plays of your career and went through them. Some teams didn't even look at film at all. You never knew what to expect. So I walk in, and there's no less than 40, 45 people in this tiny hotel room where the Jets are doing their meetings. And immediately – one by one, they all come up to me, tell me their names and their position with the Jets. Takes seven, eight minutes of this 15-minute meeting. Wow. 
I'll be honest with you. I'm terrible with names. I don't tend to pay very good attention. I need to work on that. And at the end of it, Mangino, who I have no idea who he is, because he'd just been hired. He'd never been a head coach before. I don't really follow the NFL. I had no idea he was just with the Patriots and Belichick and all that. Comes up to me and he goes, who's the head coach? Oh, God, I have no idea. Uh, no clue. So I just pointed at Sunday. I don't know. It must have been the clerk or something because they all bust out laughing. He goes, it's me. Who's the GM? And then he asked me, like, I got them all wrong. And I'm just like, oh, this is going terribly. Then we sat down the last five minutes and went through the worst 15 plays of my career. It was by far the worst meeting of all the meetings I had with. All. I walked out of there just like somebody beat me up with the Louisville slugger. And all that's all they want to see is how you react. The next meeting, Coach Fox is with the Panthers still. I walk in and it was like a comedy session. They didn't ask me a serious question. It was all jokes. It was, I was like, oh my God, it was a whirlwind. So the meetings were crazy. So they were toying. They wanted to see how he reacted. And I've always been a big Herm Edwards fan because when I met with the Chiefs, I, I walk in, I sit down, it's me and him on a couch. And they got one guy with the video screen up. And this, this was one of my last meetings. And I'd watched these, these 15 worst plays about a thousand times. And I was just kind of over it. It might've even been the same night as the Jets thing. I don't remember. And they start, he pulls it up and immediately I can see what it is. And I don't know what I did. I must've just looked crushed because he immediately looked, I just must've gone like, oh. he shut it off and he goes, we're not going to talk about that. He, I think he felt bad for me. I was just like, oh my God, you know, and we just sat there. We actually talked about Will Shields, you know, cause he was playing for him at the time. He was a Nebraska guy. I've always been a big fan of his since. Um, so anyways, you go to bed at like midnight, you get up at four for like five straight days. And then the last day you do your testing when you're as exhausted as they can at least make you mentally. So I hated the combine. It was miserable uh, if I'm being honest. But then after that, you kind of, you can stay where you're training or you can go back somewhere else. So I stayed in Houston because I wasn't happy with my 40. I wasn't happy with a couple other things. And so I trained some more so I could redo them at my pro day. And so I redid them at the pro day. Everything was much, much better, much more like I was hoping it would be to begin with. And then you kind of got about six to eight weeks before the draft where you don't do anything. And so I just kind of hung out. Well, I should say before that six to eight weeks in the pro days, they fly you all over to the different teams. So now this, this bar is really cool. Like I'm wearing suits and I'm flying all over and I'm going, I'm staying in big fancy hotels and, you know, I'm meeting with teams and they're whining and dining. You. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, and it was kind of cool. And, you know, then you get the six to eight weeks and then draft day comes. And then, so this was back when they didn't invite everybody to the draft. They invited like the top six, seven guys. And that was it. It was the year, you know, Brady Quinn dropped, Joe Thomas was fishing on the boat, you know, all those guys, Jamarcus Russell, Calvin Johnson. So that was my year. And so I, I did it with my, I, we had the draft party at my parents' house, state of Washington. So we had just some people around that lived there and known me since I was a kid. And it was very cool. And so the Rams call, let's see. So Willis went nine. See if I get this right. No, Ginn went nine to the Dolphins. I forget who 10. Oh, Moby Okoye went 10 to the Texans. That's right. Yep. 11 was Patrick Willis to the Niners. 12 was Marshawn to the bills. I was 13th and then Darrell was 14th to the jets. And so the said they're, they're talking to Marshawn or they're talking about the pick. And then I get the call from the Rams and Scott Linehan. And they had told me when I was there, they said, one of their scouts just came up to me and said, you should just start looking at real estate while you're here. 
Um, this was also the same team that had talked to me about moving to nose guard. Right. Now, my agents had told me about smoke screens. They said, you can't really pay attention. And I, I really wanted to go to the Broncos. I always wanted to live in Denver. You know, I like mountains. I'd always been a big Broncos fan. They didn't talk to me once, not once. Not the combine, not the senior ball, didn't fly me in. And I was just kind of like, oh, man. They're like, oh, that's a great sign. Shanahan never drafts anybody he talks to. That's awesome. And then you got these other teams, you know, they're, they're telling you all, they're like, don't pay attention to any of it. So I remembered the thing from St. Louis, but I didn't really pay attention to it because it's all smoke screens. So I get the call and I'm like, it's for real. And so the call goes down, they announce the pick. And man, I was on the phone for like an hour answering a million questions, talking to media. You know, they needed all this info, getting a flight set up so I could go out there. The, that day was phenomenal. I remember waking up that morning and my wife being like, well, what do you, where do you think we're going? I'm like, Angie, we could go to Florida, Seattle, California, New York, <laughs> Louis. I have no idea. We have no control either, by the way. So the excitement was pretty cool. Um, the only thing that kind of stunk about that day was, you know, obviously my dad's had a huge impact. I brought him up several times. My parents have had a huge impact. We had this big party and everything organized. But as soon as I got off the phone, I had to be on the flight 90 minutes and the Pasco airport where we were going is, it's not far away. It's not I've hard been there. there. I've been there, Adam. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's very feasible. The problem was I literally just waved goodbye to my parents and left and never really to this day have gotten to celebrate it. That was the only thing that kind of stunk. But, you know, then we come in, we land, do the media gig. And then that's kind of how the whole draft process was. Um, as an overall whole, it's a good experience. I would just warn those who doing it next year or in the future, be ready for the combine. And uh, make sure you have an opportunity to celebrate it, whatever happens with those who matter most to you. The rest of it was was pretty awesome, honestly. Well, now you know I'm going to jump in here and say you are going to go have a party with your parents. I don't care where it is, what you do. I'm going to push you as your buddy. You need to go have a big party with them, all right? So, yeah, so I, mean, I, I, have, I have a couple quick hit follow-up questions for you. So, on your cheat day, what does Adam eat? What do you go hog wild on? Are you talking about now or back then? Back, no, back then when you okay. were training, they said, eat whatever you want. What did you go and do? My favorite mood uh, food is Mexican food followed okay. by ice cream. <laughs> you get the chips and salsa, you get the queso, the bean dip, then you get the big, whatever you, quesadilla, burrito, and then you go wash it all down with some big ice cream. It's, now, it's is this great. ice cream or Mexican fried ice cream, Adam? Which no, one? I go for the, the regular ice cream. I like okay. dairy cream the best. Dude, I love it. I love that. As a, as a former lineman, I, I love <laughs> You cracked me up, man. And so, you know, the other quick question is, you know, look, the NFL is a gigantic business and you're a piece of meat being shipped through the warehouse or whatever it is. And so they really are trying to peel back to see what, what you're made of, what your character is. When we put you under stress, when we bring you into our organization and we're paying you, you know, millions of dollars, how, how do you react with all of that? Um, I just find that really, really interesting because there's so much that's going on beneath the surface in that process. And so um, I guess a quick question on that is, so how did you adjust to all of that? You know, you sign a contract, you know, I don't remember the amount and frankly, I don't care about the money, Adam, but what was that like to now? Okay. I'm going to the Rams. I'm going through the mini camps, training camp, you're fighting for a position. I mean, that's a whole nother ba bag of cats, right? What was that like for you? Yeah, for sure. Um, I still remember. There's certain things that people ask me about. And I remember them, bam, crystal clear. And this whole process, that whole rookie year, I remember very, very well. You start asking me about year two, year three, for some reason, I don't remember it as well. 
but I, I remember the rookie mini camp. Like it was like it was nothing. I remember being insanely nervous for those practices. And then the first time we practiced with all the vets being incredibly nervous and I was learning a new position because by God, they put me at nose guard. And, you know, it was it was fun. It was exciting. It was new. It was everything I thought it would be. Um, I remember well, the first. It's full time. Yeah, foot, Adam, it's full time football. Yeah. Right. All the meetings, all the lifting, you're going against veteran guys that are paid millions like your nose guard, man. I mean, I couldn't imagine if I was coming in, they're going to put me in a nose guard dude, and you're going against a veteran center. I mean, how, come on, man. Give me some give me some color on that. Was that crazy? So it, it was well, my head was spinning because you're all on the D line, but nose guard is a completely different planet than defensive end. Nothing is the same, if I'm being honest with you um pulling i'd never had to worry about a pulling guard i never had to worry about about a down block or well cracks from receivers um right. but i never had like this world was so foreign to me it was always before about getting off playing fast using your hands using moves playing with effort you know getting around the edge now all of a sudden if a guard pulls i gotta go this way if he pulls this way if he doesn't if it's a draw now i'm a field and they're creasing but now it's not a draw and it's a pass and why you last off the line and i'm just like oh my god you know and then screens and then all of a sudden i gotta recognize screen and now wherever the center goes that's where the screen goes so i'm looking for this center like where's he at <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's actually a handoff the other way and i'm just like oh okay what the hell you know so plus you know Leonard little was a 13-year vet Glove was 14, James was 10, and then here came me. You know, so the entire defensive line meeting every day, uh, Trevor Johnson was actually in that meeting room as a defensive end as well. And he goes, man, the meeting's just coaching you all day, every day. And I'm like, I know. It'd be great if he talked to somebody else. <laughs> but it was kind of necessary, you know. Um, like they were, they traded away their nose guard from the previous year, who was a former first-round pick. And they basically right. said, this kid's starting from day one. After our first week of OTAs, they traded Jimmy Kennedy away, and yep. I was the star, so I had to work out. And so, anyways, it was it was a lot of fun. It was interesting. It was different. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of the beat on that. Uh, the center I was going against was interesting. He was about a 13, 14-year guy. And I was watching him in the weight room before we, before we ever had our first practice. I'm going to be honest with you. He's not a physically impressive-looking guy, okay? He – probably about 280, 285, skinny arms, big gut, looks just like the penguin in the face, nose and all, like he does. And I've told him all this, so it's okay. And I'm just like, I'm going to kill this guy. Like he should not be playing NFL football. Well, so everybody talks about the speed of the game being the biggest difference for them. So going from high school to college, the biggest difference for me was the speed. Going from college to the NFL, I didn't notice any difference in the speed. Of course, I changed positions. So I was focused on different things. For me, it was technique. And it was learning all these new things. The speed was no problem for me. So first play of OTAs, just a basic drive block on me. And I'm like, I'm going to kill him. He snaps it. I hit him. And I didn't have great fundamentals and technique, especially for a nose guard, because I was used to all these different things. He gets his hands inside. He gets low, drives his feet and just drives me like eight yards off the ball. And I am walking back to the what? What just happened? <laughs> the, the tall penguin just blocked me. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I learned very quickly. Fundamentals yeah. and technique are huge at that level. That's right. Because everybody's physically talented, even guys that don't look like it and have been around forever. Or look like a penguin. Yeah. Yeah. Like a exactly. penguin, better watch out. 
Oh man. And as the year progressed, like that was his last year of playing football. And I do rem- obviously I got better and better as the year progressed towards the end of the year. It got to the point where I was winning way more often than not. And there was one practice where I started to figure out his telltale signs, right? Left pass run. Every offensive lineman has them. And I finally quit worrying about every way I'm supposed to go. And I kind of had the natural reaction where I was supposed to do and do what. And so I could just focus on, okay, what's he doing? Where's the ball going now? And I'd kind of figured it out. And I had one practice where I just kind of, I won. Like I clearly won the day and he came up to me afterwards and he goes, I think I need to retire. And I go, why's that? He goes, you killed me. (laughs) And, and that was kind of, I don't know if that really was why he retired, but finally I had figured it out enough to be able to hold my own against him. And that was his last season, but that was kind of my first introduction to the league. My introduction to Nebraska was Richie Incognito, which was very different than my introduction to the league, which was Andy McCollum, who was a very different type player. Um, But yeah, he kind of helped me just, you better learn basics and fundamentals. Kevin Mawai was another one. My second year, we had practices against the Titans. We played them in our first preseason game. We went out to Tennessee, Nashville, and we practiced with them the entire week before. First time I ever met Kyle Vandenbosch. He's got red contacts in, running around the practice like a freaking lunatic. And I'm just like, this guy is nuts. I love it. He's nuts, yeah. Oh, man. Especially the red contacts. Just put it over the top, you know. And then <laughs> I'm going against Kevin Mawai, who's arguably the greatest center in the history of the NFL. And he had some tricks nobody else has ever shown me. He, he would do drive. He'd do all these things. And then he had this block where he would jump back, which if you think about an old lineman jumping backwards – that takes extreme athleticism. And then you think about the fact that he's got to snap the ball on top of it. And be active and, and snap. That's right. Oh, man. And the so I'm firing off. He jumps back. My head goes down. He throws me right on my face and goes second level and blocks the linebacker. And that was embarrassing to watch on film. Like, just what just happened? And the next day, he did it to me again. Because what would happen is all of a were sudden, they, I were, were, they running a, were they running a screen at him? What was he doing? Was he trying to set you up and go to the second level on the screen? What, what was he doing? What was he on playing? that particular play, it, I think it was more of like a reach block. Okay. But he would just Got throw it. me on my face and then just go. Um, they'd cut the guy behind me. He'd throw me and go. Yeah. yeah. And so anyways, so the next day he does it to me again. So what happens is now I've looked like an idiot twice. And the meetings are basically, what are you doing wrong, character? And so those were fun to watch. And so now I'm not firing off hard. And so now when they run power and counter, I'm getting double teamed. Now I'm getting knocked back. So the first couple of days were interesting. Um, By the fourth day, I finally had figured it out. Well, at least the one, the last time he tried to do it, I'm not going to say I figured it out, but the last time he tried to do it, he jumped and I caught him and I drove him like, because he's in the air. I caught him because I, he was kind of like sitting back on his haunches like it was a pass. I'm like, well, either it's a pass or he's jumping back, so I'm going to fly off and go after him. Even if I'm wrong, I'm tired of falling on my face. And so he jumps back, and I just happened, and I caught him, and just the momentum, I drove him straight back into Vince Young. And so on that one play, it only took about four to figure it out. Um, but then we played him in the game, and I only played like 10, 15 plays because it was the first preseason game. But, yeah, so that was a bit of a learning process for sure from – the penguin driving me backwards to Kevin Mawai throwing me on my face. And now all of a sudden I'm not flying off and now I'm getting double team knocked backwards. And this, like my people think like football, is just a bunch of big dumb animals hitting each other. It is really, it is the most violent chess game on earth. You know, maybe boxing and MMA as well, 
but people don't realize how much of a, a mental chess game all this is. Well, and so when you, okay, so I have to go back to you throwing Kevin down after he's trying to trick you, right? So when you threw him down, what did he say to you afterwards? Did he say anything? Because <sighs> no one's caught Kevin backing up and throwing him down. You know that it hasn't happened very often in his career. He's one of the best centers, right? So did he say anything to you and like, hey, got you? Or, or I mean, come on. I don't remember him saying anything when he threw me on the fa- on my face. It was just like for him, it was business as usual. I threw this young kid on his face. I think when I caught him, I don't remember him saying anything. I just remember him looking at me. Like, okay. <laughs> like he just looked at me. The only center I ever remember talking to me, uh, well, oh, the guy for the Chargers, I can't, Nick something or other, and him and Philip Rivers never shut up. All they did was talk trash. Yep. And he had all these tattoos. I don't remember his name, but he was one of the best centers at the time. My rookie, he talked a lot. The only other one was Matt Burke. And so I had Adam Goldberg wow. who played at Wyoming and then played with the Vikings. And the Vikings were our first uh, preseason game, my rookie year. The Titans were my first preseason game, my second year. And Matt, uh, Adam, who had played with Matt in Minnesota, by the way, you'll get a kick out of this. Adam and I used to go back and forth about the O-line, D-line thing. And he said, he he's like, you guys are idiots. I could train my Labrador to play D-line, see ball, get ball. So that was always his thing. Wow. Um, but anyways, he goes, don't pay attention to Matt. And I said, what does that mean? He goes, he's going to kill you with kindness. He's going to tell you how awesome you are, how great you are. He's going to tell you you did a great job. And then he's going to try to kill you. And so that's exactly what he did. You know, the first couple of plays, I actually did pretty well. He's like, oh you're going to be an all pro. You're a great player. You're doing awesome. And then the next thing I know, the third play of the game, he's hitting me after the whistle, like three seconds later, you know, so I was prepared for it. Thank goodness. But Adam's like, he gets people with that all the time. So he was the only center. I remember really talking to me that and the San Diego guy, his name, I can't remember. They were very different conversations. The San Diego guy was not complimentary. Um, anyways, yeah. <laughs> Did he speak French? <laughs> a lot of French, very fluently. A lot of French. So, so look, this is so many great things about your story, because I think of you in Washington State and, and, and trying to figure it out, your quarterback, and then you kind of play defense at the end of your high school career, you get into Nebraska, and then there's this, the, the first center you went up against, um, this idea that you kick his butt when you figure out his telltale signs, and he's like, this is the, this is the end of probably the end of my career. So I want to forward just a little, fast forward just a little bit to how you knew you were done in the NFL. Um, and then we're going to go into character chronicles and just kind of life after football. Yeah. The end of my football career was tough. So I tear my, I had had, so my last full year that I played for the, the Washington football team, I, the first day, the first thing we did was our conditioning test. Um, the conditioning test wasn't an issue. What became an issue was I got blisters in the back of my heels and they progressively got worse throughout camp. And I went to the trainers. I'll be honest with you. I'm just going to say it. they all got fired not too long ago and they were terrible at their job and I couldn't stand them. And part of it is the blisters. Part of it is how they handled my knee. Uh, I just thought they were terrible at their job. And so the thing is, my blisters became so bad that I every Tuesday throughout the season, I was going to the wound care center at the hospital. Like I'm sitting there next to burn victims, people who have legit problems. And I played the entire year with the backs of my heels cut out. They were cut out and then we would tape my shoes on. Okay. Now I also, this was my contract year. So this was a big year and I admittedly overtrained in the off season. So I had patella tendonitis and quad tendonitis on both my knees. Like I was, 
I have no idea how I played as well as I did, considering my shoes were falling off half the time and I couldn't even sit down to take a crap at home or stand back up without yeah. any pain in both knees, especially my right knee. I ended up having a decent year and then I signed the contract to come back with the Redskins and the heel, the heels finally healed. I still have big, big freaking scars. I still remember the first day I wore shoes because um, basically from the end of July when camp started all the way up until March 1st, I was in flip flops all day long. And the only time I ever wore shoes was my cleats when I taped them on. And I'd even be in the weight room, which is very dangerous to do with no shoes on, you know, with weights dropping and all that. But that's I had no choice. March 1st. I was, I was sitting in my house and I tweeted and posted on Facebook. Today's the first day I've worn shoes since July, you know, cause that's how bad the heels were. And they finally healed up now going into the next year, my heels were normal, big scars, but I could wear shoes. Um, I still had, my left knee was much better, but my right knee was still bugging me, especially above the knee, which is the quad tendon. But I was like, man, this is so much better than a year ago. And let's see the first game we played the saints and that's when the whole griffining thing started. Uh, Robert went off and then we played the Rams, which of course was a big game for me. It was the second time we'd played them. I'd played them the year before my first year with the skins. And I went against Adam Goldberg and I'm going to say with pride, I ran him over. It was great. Um, <laughs> I called him, a, I called him a stiff, broken statue on the way back to the huddle. Cause he always called Labrador retriever. And I said, you guys don't have to move. You have no athleticism. You're like a statue. So anyways, <laughs> uh, and so anyways, the next year, like the first play of the game, I mean, I'd taken on double teams, you know, all sorts of blocks my entire life. Nothing fancy. I come off the ball. I literally go like this to touch the old lineman and try to grab him so I can do a ripper swim. And it just pops. My quad tendon pops. And I remember the doctor telling me, oh, this is this is a simple repair. You'll be good to go in five months. And he did the surgery. Everything was good to go. Uh, well, was getting a month later, it looked like everything was going to be good to go. In fact, their head, the head trainer for the football team was like, you're ahead of schedule, which is how it always was with my surgeries. And there's this thing called a CPM machine. You put your leg in it, it bends it back and forth to get the flexion. Cause the most difficult thing in a, in a quad tendon repair is getting the flexion in your knee. And this could be an hour long story. So I'm going to shorten it. I tore doing their protocol in their machine. I tore my quad tendon again. So now I've torn it twice within a month. And now the timetable for return is completely up in the air. And so they do it again. They fix it again. And we get stuck. Like, I can't bend my knee to 90 degrees. Like, it won't. Like, it's like this. Yeah. Wow. So we go in. We break up a ton of scar tissue. So that's surgery number three. Then I get to 105. You got to get to 120. I can't get past 105. We can't figure out why. So they do all these MRIs, x-rays, can't figure it out, can't do it. And so they do a CAT scan on my knee. Finally, what shows is that my body grew this big freaking bone for some reason, and it won't let it bend. So we, so it's like a major surgery. It's probably a bigger surgery than the quad tendon because they got to take out this that, big bone. That's right. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. There's a fifth surgery in there. I can't remember what it is. And then at the about a year and a half later, about a full two years, Wow. A year and a half after the bone surgery, two years after the initial um, surgery, the quad tendon repair. So for the first year, for the five months, I was on crutches because I was supposed to be on crutches for six weeks. I tore it again. So another. So it was, it was a lot of months um, for the first year, year and a half. I couldn't walk right. I'd be walking in the mall. My leg would just give out. I constantly had to be ready to grab something. I never knew when it was just going to give out on me like a year and a half later. And I can't even walk right like it wasn't looking great. So we're a full two years later. I've been able to do six months of actual rehab. 
Um, I can actually walk without fear of falling on my face all the time. Uh, when we started running, I had to be concerned about it. We'd finally gotten to the point where I could just jog. And people may not know this who haven't had surgery, but like going up the stairs isn't a big deal. Going down, that's the problem. I finally got to the point where I could jog. I couldn't run. I couldn't burst. I couldn't plant. Wow. But I could go, I could jog and I could go down the stairs with no fear of face planting. And it was like, finally, the light was, was being bright and they wanted me to come back. And I went home that day and I'm like, it was a great day of rehab, best day I'd had ever. And I told my wife I said, best day of rehab ever. So excited. Like I, and it's, it's, it was like, you know, February at that point. So I got months to come back and be fully ready. I'm like super excited that night. My leg just swells up and it's uber painful, insanely painful. So I call the head trainer. And he knew something was wrong. Um, everyone has their flaws. I got my flaws. But one thing about me is if I say something hurts, you know, it hurts. And so we met, we met up, did an MRI, big infection in my leg. Nobody knows why. Nobody knows where it came from. Nobody knows what happened. Nobody knows why that day. So they had to go in, take care of the infection. And it wasn't long after that, maybe 10 days, two weeks, they released me. So we moved my family down to Pensacola, Florida to do rehab at James Andrews Institute. Yep. And so we literally lived there from March, April, May, June, July, five months. By the way, one of the best times of my life, I would do rehab in the morning. I'd come home, I'd eat lunch, I'd do rehab again. It was like training for the draft, except I'm doing rehab. And then we'd go to the pool with the kids or we'd go to the beach with the kids or we'd go, you know, deep sea fishing or whatever. I'm doing all this work all day, every day, but my drive is palm trees and, and ocean and I'm... Throwing your kids in the pool off the oh, shoulder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. I was doing all this work, but it was, and then we'd go down to Destin and they got all this stuff to do down there. And you're on a pirate ship and you do all this stuff. I found out I am a wimp out on the deep seas because every time we went out on the ocean to go fishing, I got insanely seasick. And apparently you're not supposed to bring bananas because um, that is a big deal to anyone who owns a boat and takes them out in the ocean because he was very, very mad when I told him I had bananas. Um, so anyways, you're not supposed to bring bananas on a boat out in the ocean. I found out for multiple people. Um, and I got seasick both times. So maybe, maybe they're right. So anyways, go ahead. Well, Adam, I mean, Adam, it's like, you know, Eric Crouch and I were talking about this. Everyone in the NFL is playing hurt. Right. And, yeah. and you're playing at such a high level. Uh, when I hear the story and I actually have met Dr. Andrews several times and my best yeah. friend actually trained under him uh, in Alabama. So I, I, you were in such great hands, but it's amazing how, if you were to go back and think, how many times have you been hit? How many times have you hit somebody? How many tackles have you done all the way through from high school to that point in your career in the NFL? It's an astounding number, right? Yeah. I was actually going to ask as we get ready to transition to character chronicles and, and, and come to the end of this time, which I've really enjoyed. It sounds like it's Angie, correct? Yeah. From, I mean, she has been there through everything and, and both of us are pretty private people even though we have public stuff and I'm not trying to ask you to share something you don't want to share, but just tell me about Angie. Tell me a little bit about your family, however you want to. It seems to me as I've known you in the post NFL life and the character chronicles life, your family involvement is super important. And I just, from one man to another, I have a tremendous amount of respect for that because football did consume our lives. So could you give us a little color on that? And then we'll move on to character chronicles. So what, one of my other dreams growing up was to be happily married. Um, so I have two half sisters and a half brother. 
So you can kind of piece together what all that means and how that works and things I saw growing up. So for me, I wanted, one of my goals was to be happily married. And, you know, as you're playing football, the higher level you go or the more success you have, it becomes, it becomes extremely harder to trust people because you don't know what's real and what's not. Her and I were dating. The first sack I ever had was Joe Clack, Colorado, my redshirt freshman year. Her and I were dating before then. And no idea if I'd ever play, no idea if I'd ever be good. And so she was there before all of that. And she didn't want to date a football player. If I'm being honest, she told me she didn't want to date a football player. Her brother, like I said, was a football player. She'd been there, done that, seen that, you know, it wasn't that big a deal to her. And so that that's how that trust and that loyalty was built on my end towards her. So she grew up on a small family farm. It's actually been in existence for 110 years now in wow. Ogallala, Nebraska, Brule, but more people know Ogallala. Been there. Yep. Yeah. And her dad passed down from his dad, from his dad. Now her brother, Jeff, who I played with, is going to take it over. He's got a son, Trevor, who's only five, but is all about football and farming. Don't know where he got that from. So he's probably going to take it over next. And so she has those small town, Nebraska, hardworking values. Her whole entire family does. If I was to list the 10 hardest working people I've ever met, five of them would be her, her mom, her dad, and her older brother. Um, and her and Jeff. Uh, Phil's their oldest brother, who's actually one of my better friends as well. So that's kind of how that all uh, meshes together. Uh, what was the rest of your question? No, I just, you know, I, you know, you're not talking about, you know, how you're coaching with your kids. And again, I'm not trying to drag them into all of this, but, but how fun is that to, to coach them and to, I mean, that's just like a dream, isn't it? Uh, no, that's not a dream I had. I saw the work <laughs> in youth sports um, growing okay. up. Okay. I never wanted to coach youth sports. And I've seen them all over again, coaching my kids. Now, coaching my kids, that is awesome. Dealing with everyone else's parents, that is not what I enjoy. I actually feel like youth sports is one of the dirtiest things in America because there's so many parents who just need to take their ego and everything else and set it aside because it's about them and not the kids. And it creates a problem for everyone else where it is about the kids. You know, I think it's dirtier than the NFL because the NFL is dirty and everyone knows that youth sports is not supposed to be, but it is um, all too often. Not everybody, not even the majority. But, right. but the parents are parents are living vicariously through their kids. Yes. Yes. And this is coming from you, who's a first round draft pick. Right. And so I think that's the irony of all of this. So I, I guess just give me a quick blurb. So how does that go when you've got the super parent, you know, just going crazy on, a, I don't know, a 10 year old? I mean, what, what do you do? It doesn't go well because it can. I'm honest with them. Um, and I, I and had you're qualified, and you qualified to say so, but they don't want to hear that. They don't. <laughs> I had one dad go, "Well, I played high school sports in Texas." What? <laughs> Congratulations! What do you want from me? You know. And anyways, right. so you know, here's the deal. Like, I had ten kids on my basketball team two years ago. The basketball okay. team I had this past year was freaking phenomenal. Um, Cause I got rid of the people from two years ago, but I had two families on that team. Well, I had three, one of them was never there. That's why I don't even count them. Cause I forget they were on the team. Right. I had two other families that caused more drama than yep. everybody else combined. And so I wanted them to leave and I probably should have just told them to leave. But what I did is I decided to give them a chance. I threw out things like, you got to be to practice. You got to be on time. Uh, we're going to have a tryout, which we weren't. Um, you got to, earn your spot, you know, things of this nature. And right. all of a sudden they just kind of evaporated away. And 
you know, it was kind of funny how that worked. They didn't want to hear those things. It was a sense of laziness, arrogance, and entitlements. So anyways, um, youth sports, coaching my kids has been great. Uh, dealing with other kids as parents sometimes is not. Uh, as a general whole, though, just seeing what I saw growing up, whether it be a divorce or whatever the case may be, one of my big goals was to be happily married. And so, I mean, that's probably been one of the coolest accomplishments of my entire life. Uh, I never planned on having six kids, that's for sure. But uh, I never planned on twins, five girls, any of that. But uh, I don't know. It, it's My dad told me when I was a kid, he said, you'll never understand unconditional love until you have your own kids. Right. And I thought, he, well, whatever. You know, I was, I was a kid. Um, now being a dad, I look back, he's exactly right. I couldn't have stated it any better than he did. So. Oh, it's just, it's spectacular. And, you know, in many senses, uh, by the way, I identify with you on the first side way more than, than I thought thought I did. But the idea of trying to changing the trajectory, right? Having a happy family, helping them bring some stability and bring them, and it's not a knock against my family background, my family, divorce, all that stuff, but just getting them on stable tracking and, and, and allowing them to be the best version of themselves that they can be. And so thanks for sharing that, Adam. I, I think that's that's where some of the real stuff is in this life. And I'm glad you're out there uh, helping some of those youth keep the parents in check because I see it myself and it drives me absolutely crazy. And I was not a first round draft pick. So let's move into the last part of this, uh, this conversation, which I'm just loving it, man. I just love it. And I thank you again for your time. How I kind of came into getting to know you is character chronicles. And there's just this, you've just found this beautiful um, it's a marriage of kind of, being funny and throw the bones and you got the look and then it's the real analysis of football. And I just think you've packaged it together really well. Tell me what, tell us whatever you want to tell us about character chronicles, because I'm absolutely in love with it. Oh, well, I appreciate that. It's interesting because I was an incredibly shy kid. Uh, right. Very, very shy. You know, at one point I was scared to pick up the phone and order pizza. If that gives you a little bit of perspective there, like who's scared to freaking order pizza. I was. So I hated public speaking. I hardly ever spoke. Um, now, as I got older, as I mentioned, I developed a distrust of the media. So the fact that I now do public speaking and I'm a part of the media is mind blowing to anyone who knew me as a kid. Uh, had you told me this as a kid, I would have laughed at you and never paid attention to you ever again. So I had no ambition. Uh, public speaking, you know, doing what I'm doing right now at all. The If you remember, was it 2012, 2011, the lockout? whenever that was. Yep. Um, and some folks know that I'm, I'm a, I'm a big, I'm not as big as I was. The product is just not as good as it once was, but I'm a big WWE fan or pro wrestling fan. And so anyways, Chuck Carroll, who had, he was a, a referee. He never made it to WWE, but he was a referee and a wrestler for a while on some of the indies and, and traveled around and did some of those things. Wanted me to do a wrestling show with him. I don't want to talk publicly and I don't want to do the media. So I said, no, immediately. Well, the lockout is just going on and on. I'm bored out of my mind. I'm just bored. Okay. And this is before I had six kids. So there was legit nothing to do. And so right. I call him one day and I'm like, are people going to be able to see me? He's like, what? I'm like, if we do this podcast or this show, are people going to be able to, see? I didn't want people to see me because I would sweat a ton. Um, if you yeah. watch some of those early shows, I always had a hat on to cover up the sweat. If you just type in fourth and pain and Google and you got nothing better to do and you go way back years and years. Now, as the show went along, it would start to go away as I got more and more comfortable. So anyways, it was just at first it was audio. And then I discovered 
you know, I didn't absolutely suck at this. I kind of enjoyed it. I could control what was being said, which is what I liked. Nobody could miss or partially quote me for their own narrative, which I really liked. And then we kind of got on 106.7 The Fan out there in D.C., and then people wanted to hear football. So it became fourth and pain was perfect for half football, half wrestling. And so I had done that. But when they released me, we quit doing the show. And so a couple of years went by or maybe a year or whatever it was. And then all of a sudden in Nebraska, Polini gets fired. And so I'm watching the reaction on Twitter and Facebook. Most of the people reacting or former players were guys who'd played for him. I had played with some of these guys. I had played against some of these guys. I had watched most of these guys on TV. And I could not possibly disagree anymore with what they were saying. But nobody was saying the opposite argument. So I sat down. I didn't even have a Facebook page until my marketing guy made me get it. It was literally like a couple months before this. I just, I typed on my Facebook page, this big, long thing. There's no paragraphs. I certainly didn't do spell check or go back or reread it. I was just basically venting. It's like that email you, you want to send to somebody and you type it out and don't <laughs> hit send. Except I did. I hit send. I, I, had like, yeah, I, I, had little, I had little to no following, so I didn't think much of it. Within a couple hours, I get a text from a guy at the World Herald. I didn't even know they had my number. He's like, can we run this? I'm like, I don't care, sure. And then I started to get texts from former players. They didn't got a lot of traffic. And so then Mike Riley gets hired. Nobody knows who Mike Riley is. Well, I grew up in the state of Washington. I grew up four hours from Corvallis and my football team went there all four years of high school for football camp. So then I wrote a thing about Mike Riley. Um, people, it was in, people thought it was interesting. So the next year comes along, the next football season comes along and I'm like, and I'm starting to like, okay, at some point football is going to end, you know, whether I want it to or not. And I was like, you know, do people actually care what I have to say or was they just some hot, hot topics? So every Sunday night, um, Mike Riley's first year, I would write an article every Sunday night and I'd put it out and did really well. And at the end of that year, uh, Husker Max, David Max of Husker Max got a hold of me. And he said, for every article you write, you can do a video. For every dollar you make in an article, you can make six in a video. And yourself or anyone who's ever written an article knows the most difficult thing is tone. You can send a text to three different people and three different people can read it three different ways based on the little voice in their head. I, right. I spent more time on tone than I did anything else in my articles. Well, you can see my body language in a video. You can hear my tone. And I had done the show before with fourth and pain. So I knew it wasn't a nightmare scenario for me. And I'd even done it in front of the camera eventually. And so I started to do these videos for Husker Max. And at the end of that second year with Riley, um, the Omaha World Herald guy who is, um, Actually, not the Herald anymore, but he's the whole reason I'm with the Herald, with Graham Archer, which is kind of funny. Uh, he still texts me every once in a while after a Character Chronicles episode because he still watches them every day. I didn't know he did. I got a text from him randomly like a year and a half after he left the Herald. Ah, oh, this show, I don't agree with this, and I agree with this. I'm like, <laughs> I didn't know you watched the show still. He's like, dude, you're the reason. I'm the reason you're there. I'm like, okay, that's fair. You know, so anyways, he gets a hold of me. We work out a deal with the Herald, and I've been with them since, just doing the videos and things of that nature. So the Chronicles basically... I, I don't have a communications degree. Uh, I've never, uh, you know, any media, I've never done any of that. Uh, not that I don't think I don't need it. I, I actually like, because I like things that are different. Um, why be the next someone else when you can be the first you? Okay. So it's not that I don't think I need it. It's not that I don't think it would make me better. It's none of that. I want to be different than everyone else. 
And so if I, if I do what everyone else did, I'm going to be like everyone else. So when you watch my show or anyone watches my show, my goal isn't necessarily to be better or worse. It's to be different. And then you can decide it for on your own, if you like it or not. So when I get ready to do public speaking, or I get ready to do a show or my character live show, which is live on Sunday nights, I get on YouTube and I watch Stone Cold Steve Austin promos. I watch The Rock. I watch John Cena. Like the reason I talk like a WWE wrestler is because that's who I watch and that's who I learn from. And they don't get enough credit. Yes, it's predetermined. Okay. But their job is to literally, especially with the mic in their hands, to hold thousands in attendance, millions across the world in the palm of their hand with what they can do verbally. And if they can do that as well as they do, and Vince McMahon can become a billionaire off of something that everybody knows is predetermined, there's something there. So to me, if you watch Pat McAfee, I mean, he's now a commentator on Friday Night SmackDown. He talks the way he does. He did it after me. He's done it on a much bigger scale than me, yeah. but like a WWE wrestler. So anyways, that's kind of the whole backstory there. You know what? I'm blown away by your life because it's like, hey, you're a quarterback in football. And you play a little defense. Your first round draft pick is a defensive player, right? I look at all these things. Uh, no, I'm not having formal training and communication in the media. And here you are doing this thing. And what you just described is genius. You want to be the first version of you, not somebody else. And I think I, I'm saying this probably with thousands of other people that watch the show. That's what I love about it. And I love, I don't, I'm a call it a goofball look when you throw the bones, but dude, I just, I just freaking love it. And so what's, so how has COVID affected uh, Character Chronicles and what's the future of Character Chronicles, Adam? I mean, anything that's online, you know, COVID is obviously, let's be honest, it sucked and it's very unfortunate. If you, ha if you do things online, you've actually benefited from it. You know, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Netflix, whether it's my show online, I would rather COVID didn't exist, but any people are doing stuff online now. And so it's actually helped the show as much as I would prefer that COVID did not exist. Character Live or Character Chronicles, it's actually helped the show. I hope we can get back to normal very, very soon. The future of the Character Chronicles, uh, you know, when I started it, it was all just a feeling out process. Um, is this, is there anything to this? Do I actually want to do this? Do people actually care? And the one thing I always said was, if it's not fun for me, I don't want to do it because I don't have to do it. I'm fortunate enough. I don't have to do it. I, I, I want to do it. I like to do it. Um, so that's great. And it's, I'm not going to lie to you. There have been some shows that have been brutal to do. Like after some Riley games and after some of these frost games, I look at my wife and my gut reaction. I'm like, what am I supposed to say? I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie but I want to just sit and just bury everything because that's kind of how I feel. So what do I, there's some challenges that have presented themselves um, being honest yet, not just going off the deep end and just burying everything. Cause that'd be ridiculous too. So, but the future, I think it looks good. I had a conversation with someone at the Herald. Well, actually I, I finally, the Herald has been sold a couple of times over yep. since I've been there. And every time I get a, I don't get a call from them very often. I hear from them like once a year, which I consider no news good news because they keep firing people, letting people go. New companies bought it, you know, and I'm just like, oh, God, if I just don't hear nothing, that's great. Every time they call me, I look at my wife. I'm like, it's Thad from the Herald. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, and up to this point, it's meant nothing. I learned what a furlough is. You know, I didn't know what a furlough was. So but that was the last time he, he spoke with me. But anyways. I finally got to meet a lot of the people in charge because I've been with them for like five years and I've never met the people upstairs. I never knew who was going to be there. Are you going to be here next year? So anyways. And they all seem happy. They all seem pleased. I'm happy working with them. So the future seems bright. Um, some other companies have gotten a hold of me. They have asked me to be their Nebraska guy. They've asked me to do some things. 
the the proximity like my commute is down the stairs and to the left to my studio you know where i'm at right now so hard to beat that commute um like i said they don't tell me what to do they i just if i don't hear from them it's great news so i just do my own thing you can't i'm my own boss essentially so i mean if other opportunities came along it had to be pretty good but i, I i'm pretty happy there and they seem pretty happy with me so I hope you keep doing whatever it is that comes to comes to your heart and your mind because I think it's genuine. I think it's beautiful. I think uh, a lot of I mean you have a lot of people tuning into that and it's just it's awesome. And I, you know, Adam, as we as we start to close this down, uh, I can't thank you enough for your time. I can't thank you enough for being vulnerable and then sharing some things that that may have not been uh, known by many. And it really helps us at the Nebraska Greats because it's about guys that have deep roots in Nebraska that are former student athletes. Whether you've gone to the NFL or not, or you have this wonderful show or not, um, uh, you're a Nebraskan. You know what it's like to help your neighbor. Uh, you know what it's like to um, to leave it all out in the field and then go on and do whatever's next in your life. And I feel like, as you know, I know a bunch of guys. Um, I feel like you're one of the guys, one of those guys that's done that and you've gone through the process and it's been good and it's been hard. It's been difficult. It's been challenging. And here you are. So um, I thank you very much, Adam, for your time. Is there anything else you'd like to impart with those that are going to listen to our podcast? I appreciate uh, your time. I thank you for having me. I would say, like I know several people within Nebraska greats. I know Jason McCants does a great job. Uh, I don't know if he's ever shared this publicly. He's told me several times and other people in the room. So I think he's okay with it. But like, he does a lot of stuff for Nebraska greats because Jerry Murtaugh, who's a legit great guy, national champ, former All-American for Nebraska, when Jerry's cousin got, um, I'm sorry, uh, Jason's cousin got sick, Jerry stepped in and literally, according to Jason, saved his life. And so now Jason does everything, just wants to help out, doesn't ask for anything, doesn't want anything because Nebraska greats is literally not only affecting and impacting people in a positive way, in the case of some people, literally saving their lives. So try to support this organization as much as you can. Very good, Adam. I can't couldn't say it any better. Uh, well, that wraps up our conversation with Adam Carrick. Again, we thank him so much for his time. This is a Nebraska Greats Apple podcast. Uh, we'll we'll put this out into the into the ether, and we hope that you share it, you download, you listen to it, and at the end of the day. We are family, and we're trying to bring awareness to helping those that are in need. Many of them are reluctant to ask for it. So if you know a teammate, a friend, a family member that's maybe lost their job in COVID, maybe they have a horrible disease and the medical bills are piling up, or there's, there's a financial concern, have them reach out to me. You can even have them have to reach out to Adam if you'd like. He'll get it back to us. Uh, lastly, on our website, anygreats.org, there is an application. So if you know somebody please direct them that way. And I guess, can we do, can we throw the bones here, Adam, to, to, to finish this off? You want to, you want to finish this off? Absolutely. Let's do it. Until next time, Husker Nation, go big red. And always remember, throw the bones. Throw the bones. This has been Nebraska Greats, a weekly podcast serving the Nebraska Greats Foundation. You can find each episode on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Play, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Please give generously to serve Nebraska's former sports heroes in need at anygreats.org. And be sure to follow the Any Greats on Facebook and Twitter.